Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents a number of topics, including the mask mandate for Columbus, ongoing safety concerns about amusement rides in Ohio, and a look back at 9-11. And in about 45 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour talking with the head of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. Did you know there are more than 300 wineries in Ohio? We'll get an update on how they're doing and a threat they face from the natural world. First up on Columbus Perspective, I'm joined on the phone by Scott Anderson. He is a problem gambling coordinator with the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. How are you? Thanks for talking to us. You're also with Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Tell us what that's about. Uh, when when the casino legislation passed back in, uh, I guess, 2011, um, we, we sort of had to come up with an idea of how to address the problems that would come from gambling if anyone had a problem. And the Ohio Lottery, and at that time, the Ohio Department of Alcohol and Drug Addiction Services, ODATIS, had a longstanding um, partnership. Uh, when the casinos came, the Casino Control Commission came online, and then when legislation was, was passed to have uh, electronic gaming devices in the in the racetracks, then the Racing Commission got involved. So we got together and formed Ohio for Responsible Gambling, which was all the state agencies that would be touched by this. So uh, we, we thought it was a good idea at the time, and as it turns out, we're the only state in the United States that thought that and did it. So um, we're, we're way out ahead of the, of the curve there. So it's uh, the, the Racing Commission is, is um, still involved, but it's, it's primarily the Ohio Lottery Commission, the Casino Control Commission, and us at the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. So we don't duplicate efforts. We don't, um, you know, we have, each of us have a, uh, an area of expertise. So we stay out of each other's lane, so to speak, but we all work very collaboratively together and pretty much on a daily basis to make sure that we address every avenue that we can to, um, to help Ohioans. So does a lot of that center around the set-asides from profits in the gambling industry that go toward problem gambling? The, um, the Casino Control Commission, um, when, that, when that was formed, we all had to figure out um, how we were going to do this, and 2% of the tax revenue was set aside from the casinos to four casinos that goes to us directly for um, prevention, treatment, education, and research on problem gambling within the state. And then the Ohio Lottery operates uh, the seven racinos, we call them, and that's the racetracks that have electronic gaming devices or video lottery terminals. So there is also money from the Ohio lot, from the Ohio Lottery that, that is given to us to, uh, to help in mitigating that harm. As we talk, September is Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, and there's a connection between that and what we're talking about. Yeah, very much so. Um, gambling, uh, gambling disorder has one of the highest suicide rates of any disorder out there, um, and it's, it's really devastating in a lot of ways, and not just the gambler. It can be devastating to families as well. Gambling has a really unique um, property to it in that it offers an element of hope, right? We could win. You could buy the winning ticket. You could pull the handle or get the right card or, or what have you, and you could win. So a lot of people uh, look at that as a way to get out of a unfortunate situation, whether it's uh, employment or financial or health or relationship or what have you, and they look to gambling to 
the escape from that situation. So uh, when you have that element of hope involved and you're putting all of that, your effort and resources into that one thing that you think could get you out of your situation by only making your situation worse as you lose repeatedly. So we've seen very unfortunate things with people taking money from uh, kids' college funds or opening second mortgages without their spouse's knowledge or actually taking money from their employers or from their work situation or you know misusing money that was meant for something else. And then when that you know those monies are gone, they have to come clean with their loved ones. So there's a real devastating blow that comes to families and relationships and employment from it's kind of a hamster wheel where you you're down 38,000 and then you think the only way I can get this back is to continue what got me $38,000 in debt in the first place. So you, you, the solution and the problem kind of juxtapose until you have a real, real devastating situation on your hands. So when someone turns to that to try to get back ahead and when they lose everything and maybe they've done it before, what is their mindset at that time? Do they immediately regret having done it or does it just make them uh, compel them to do it again later? Well, you know, we have um, a couple of unfortunate true stories from Ohio where, excuse me, a gentleman was down a hundred and something thousand dollars and he actually hit a $38,000 jackpot or something like that at one of the casinos and it wasn't enough. So he continued to play with that money until that was gone and, you know, only made his situation worse. So you have, you know, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't drink alcohol until your bills were paid. You wouldn't smoke crack cocaine until your child support was caught up. You know, there's not that element in any other form of, of mood-altering experience that there is in gambling. So you're you're hoping to get out of your situation only by making your situation worse. And then at some point, you, you know, you're you're out of funds, you're out of resources, and you have to come clean to your family members or your employer or whoever it is that you've taken the money from. And, you know, that can be a, a real, real bad place to be. Talking with Scott Anderson, with he's a problem gambling coordinator for the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Just in the last couple of days, uh, comedian Norm MacDonald passed away. And I, I was looking on the Wikipedia entry about him, and he apparently had a gambling addiction. It says that on three occasions, he lost everything gambling, the largest amount, $400,000. He also frequently played live games as well as online poker, McDonald stated in an interview in 2018 that prior to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruling, he would play up to 20 online limit hold'em games at once. And he was quoted as saying, since they went offline, it kind of saved my life because I was just grinding out and could not even sleep. Yeah, that's um, a a very sad um, part of a lot of people's story. And it also illustrates that nobody really can see gambling. Um, if you and I were, you know, drunk right now, we, we would sound drunk. But we both could have gambled on something this morning before the before the interview, and no one would know. So it's secret for a really long time until it's not. Uh, you know, you don't you don't show up for work with lottery breath uh, or blackjack breath. You know, you, you it's, it's not evident until it until it is, which usually is pretty far down the road. Um, and there's a lot of uh, public figures. You know that that have you know you, you see uh, Phil Mickelson and and Tiger Woods were playing golf for million dollars you know so don't ever confuse the amount of money 
lost or won with the problem. If uh, you know those, if I lost fifty bucks, that would be devastating to me. But they can do a hundred dollars on a hole, and they have the, the money to cover that. So it's it's not the money; it's the it's the problem that it causes. Is there a definition or a, a certain level at which it becomes a problem gambling issue or a gambling disorder? Well, we we there's a uh, there's a diagnostic criteria. There's there's you know several. Um, Gambling more on riskier things to gain the same um, excitement, uh, feeling restless or or irritable when you're trying to cut down or stop, um, inability to stop lying about your wins, losses, or time spent, um, asking family members or others for bailouts to to relieve a financial situation. So there there's very distinct <clears throat> diagnostic criteria, but we always say it's a problem if it causes a problem. If I've absolutely promised, you know, my my wife or or my husband or my kids or whoever that I'm never going to gamble again, and you know they go out and borrow the car and there's scratch off tickets under the seats, um, that's only two or three dollars worth of tickets, but I promised I wouldn't do it. So now there's a problem. Now there's a real trust issue, a relationship problem. You know, there's tension in the home. So it's not the dollars. It's 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 saying that I won't or or getting caught in in that situation and we always say you know for for each of us individually set a limit on both time and money um gambling is an entertainment uh you can go to the casino for and spend however much is in your entertainment budget on on slot machines or table games or what have you and when that money is gone um, you're done and go have dinner. Or if you say, I'm going to gamble for an hour and then we're going to eat or go to the concert, when that hour is up, whether you're up or down, go ahead and walk away from, from whatever you're doing and, and go on to the next thing. And if you have a difficulty in setting those those personal limits, whatever they are in time, money, um, or days of the week, and you can't do it, then you know that, that can be evidence that there, there could be a problem or that you're at risk. And is there a known reason or a factor as to why it's easy for some people to just run up their limit and, and leave voluntarily and those who just can't pull themselves away? Well, you know, it's very similar to um, <clears throat> drug addiction or alcohol or marijuana or cigarettes or anything else. Um, we're all different. We all have different um, medical backgrounds, uh, uh, histor- history, uh, family history backgrounds, um, socialization. Some people grew up never gambling. Some people uh, played poker at home as kids with their families. So they're, they're socialized into that, into that game as a normal thing to do. Um, but about we know that about 10% right in that area uh, of folks are at risk for you know some sort of level of problem. In Ohio, with our, our last prevalence survey, it was just a little over 1% of the folks um, you know in Ohio that actually would qualify as you know diagnosable for gambling disorder. But again, as more and more gambling opportunities come up, um, more and more problems will arise. It's, it's just math. Um, but, you know, we've seen an uptick in calls to the to our problem gambling helpline on cyber currency and on day trading and on things that aren't, you know, necessarily casino-based or, you know, what we would call traditional gambling. Um, as the venues were closing due to the pandemic and there was a lot more tension, there was a lot more uncertainty, there was a lot of, you know, turmoil, basically for all of us, we're all experiencing a a certain degree of trauma as a result of this. So we look to escape. 
And when some of those buildings were closed and people couldn't go, they, they reached out to other avenues, which is kind of frightening in itself. Well, now the state legislature is uh, working on sports betting, and it's uh, it's passed in the Senate. The House is taking it up this fall, but even if it passes, it won't start until sometime next year. That must be on your radar as a concern. Yeah, sports betting has been, um, it's already gone in over 20 states. Each state is kind of looking at it and doing it a little differently. Some states have said that you can't bet on college sports within the state. For instance, in New Jersey, you can't bet on Princeton or Rutgers uh, in football or basketball or so forth, but you can bet on other college sports. Um, in, in Ohio, the way it's written now, it's going to be professional, amateur, collegiate, basically every sport around the world. So you'll have access to, to all those um, ways to bet. And there's a, you know, there's a number of concerns that, that we have and other people have in, in the states, and, and that's um, – you know, obviously more opportunity, more access uh, could be uh, leave more people at risk. And it's going to be available on your phone. Uh, you'll be able to do in-play betting. You'll be able to bet balls and strikes. You'll be able to bet penalties, um, yards passed, um, color Gatorade dumped on the coach. You're going to be able to bet on all avenues of different, different things within the game as the game is in progress. Wow. So that's um, pretty easy access. And we all have these little computers in our pockets that you know, we have access to a wide range of things um, but we can also use those um, phones to get help too you know we have a, a 1-800 number for gambling it's 1-800-589-9966 and that will access you care in your area wherever you are in ohio so you can use your phone to, to get help as well allow for responsible gambling. The only thing we're, all of us, um, are, are making sure of is that there are consumer protections put in place, and that would be that uh, some of the money that is taken in goes to treatment and prevention and education for problem gambling, and that, um, you know, age protections was another one that we that we vocalized uh, to make sure that if it's if, if you have to be 18 or you have to be 21, that there's some sort of verification of your age as, as you're involved. And then there, there are states that have done things. Um, MGM, big gaming company, has a an, uh, within their app, they have um, built-in safety measures. If all of a sudden your bets increase or your uh, velocity of betting increases, it'll actually send you a message and say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? And it'll give you a point to kind of slow down and think about what you're doing. So we're, we're trying to get those consumer protections, um, made sure that those are written into the to the law as whatever the final version is. But, you know, that obviously, um, you know, we're watching it closely. Talking with Scott Anderson, he is a problem gambling coordinator for the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and he's also with Ohio for Responsible Gambling. So in the years since casinos and racinos and all that have come to Ohio since the lottery, how has it changed the landscape? How has the way Ohioans perceive gambling or how it fits into their lives, how has that worked out over the years? It, it, um, the first casino opened in 2012, and then the uh, racinos followed. Um, we, we set um, a couple of world, world records in that. We opened up um, 11 gaming establishments in just a few years, and we had the, one of the fastest expansions in any state. Um, but what we had done, we had the foresight to do a prevalent survey back in 2011 before anything opened. 
2011-2012. So we had data from before any of these venues opened, and then we repeated that survey in 2017. So we were able to show um, basically every category doubled. Uh, people that had never gambled before and now gamble, people that were at slight risk, moderate risk, or qualified for gambling disorder, all of those numbers um, virtually doubled. So we know that the casinos, you know, and that was not unexpected, uh, but Ohio is still below the national average in some of those numbers. So I think that a lot of our prevention efforts and a lot of our campaigns and things like that that we tried to get out ahead of were uh, fairly effective in mitigating some of the harms that came with that by educating uh, folks and, and putting some of the things in place that we did. But, you know, we're going to repeat that survey again now in uh, 23 and 22-23, which is, you know, in five-year intervals, and we're going to be able to see again uh, what the increases are or how that looks. But we know that demographically, you know, there's certain people that are more at risk, um, you know, 18 to 34-year-old males um, come up, um, older adults come up, veterans come up. So, and each for different reasons, um, but, you know, we watch those populations very closely and we try to do everything we can to make sure that that treatment is available across the board. Well, it just seems like sports betting is really going to change the landscape. We worry about, um, you know, there's there's integrity of the game. Um, you have college kids that, and this has happened before in the University of Boston, which was the, you know, the... A movie was made about that. University of Toledo not too long ago had both their football and basketball team compromised. It's not unheard of, you know, some somebody on the team that could influence the game or the outcome um, being compromised. And, you know, you, you, college kids are in dorms. They're, they're going to take immense pressure from other students, you know, for or against their performance. And um, it, you know, it, it's a it's kind of a scary, scary scenario. You know, ten thousand bucks is pretty attractive to a to a college kid. So you know, that's that's a that's definitely a concern. And some of them on uh, even on the big teams are not going to be getting the name, image, likeness kind of dollars that some of them will be. That's right, and that's a that's another interesting wrinkle that. Um, image and likeness, uh, you know, being being paid and, and reimbursed for that is going to make a, a pretty interesting power dynamic between teammates. Talking with Scott Anderson, he's a problem gambling coordinator for the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and with Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Real quick before we wrap up, Scott, what should family members be looking for if they know somebody, if they have a family member who maybe they don't even know they gamble, but maybe they do, what are the real concerns uh, when it comes to addiction or suicide thoughts that they should be aware of? If you go to uh, beforeyoubet.org, our website, beforeyoubet.org, there's a quiz on there that you can take to see where your level of risk would be. Uh, The quiz is completely anonymous. We can't see who you are or where you are or anything. It'll just give you a number and it'll give you some idea of where you are in the risk. And then on that website, too, uh, there's several areas where you can read about uh, uh, gambling, how to help a family member, um, what signs to look for, and things like that. Uh, one of the big things is is that, that not being honest, um, uh, time spent, money spent, um, money won, money lost, things like that. So, you know, those are – and if you feel someone is at risk for harming themselves, there's um, an, <clears throat> actually a suicide hotline, too, that you can call. That is one 800 
273-8255, and you can find that on the web as well. But there's um, there's a number that you can call it to uh, for yourself or for a family member to uh, to avoid that. Okay, Scott. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that there is help and hope available. Uh, we um, when you show up for treatment in Ohio. We, it's free or at a very low cost. There's no cost for treatment. We uh, we disperse all of the money that we take in from those casino addiction funds right back into the communities so that they can uh, be available for you, for you or a family member to get the help that you need. Uh, there is hope available. There is help available. And um, we're very proud of the work that we do here in Ohio with Ohio Responsible Gambling. Good information. Scott Anderson with uh, the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having us. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Here in Columbus, businesses will be responsible for enforcing the mask mandate. 10TV's Gabriela Garcia looked into how it will work. It'll be complaint-driven. Businesses already struggling to catch up from last year are concerned for what the order will mean for their staff. It's a lot of pressure to put on, on a small business like ours, and we don't have the support uh, of the, the state or even the city to enforce this. You are asking us to enforce a law that's, that we, we all know is going to be impossible to strictly comply with. Edward Hasty says he sees the writing on the wall. There's tens of thousands just in central Ohio, men and women, whose livelihood is going to be affected, and they're going to be asked to do things that normal citizens are not asked to do. They're going to be asked to basically be the police. The city said since they, not the health department, would issue the order, Senate Bill 22 wouldn't be an issue. But Hasty says he feels that's not really the case. Make no bones about it. This is a health order at the behest of the public health people. They're going to be the ones enforcing it. They explicitly said the police are not going to be enforcing it. And we'll look at what all that means as far as the legality of it all. 
Hasty also says depending on what specifics he'll see, he and his clients may look into legal action against the city. Until then, businesses are hoping for the best for their customers on a weekend that's likely to be very busy. In Columbus, we're going to take it seriously, but at the end of the day, without you know the government to help back us up and, and enforce this, there's only so much we can do. Gabriela Garcia, 10TV News. Indoor mask mandates in Bexley and Whitehall also took effect. As for President Biden requiring the COVID-19 vaccine, reaction has been pouring in. Ohio Chamber of Commerce President Steve Stiver says, quote, whether it is the federal government or the Ohio legislature, one size fits all government mandates limiting employer rights are not the right approach. U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown says in addition to the health concerns of the pandemic, there are mounting economic concerns. The Senate is out of session, and we were able to get some time on the senator's calendar for this one-on-one interview a few days ago. It was a wide-ranging interview. We talked about COVID, the Senate filibuster, the evictions moratorium, and infrastructure. But I'm mostly looking at potential infrastructure projects, what it means in Columbus. We know, you know, we can see right here almost the I-7170 interchange, and it's one of the most dangerous places still in Ohio. The 3rd Street and 4th Street bridges and um, Front Street, all the things, the major infrastructure that has decayed over the last 25 years. And president after president says they'll fix it, and Joe Biden's the first one doing it. And so what do the folks, what do you want to say to the, the folks in the House about moving this along. Well, they, they need to move on this infrastructure bill. They need to, the Senate needs to move on, uh, and both houses need to move on extending the child tax credit, on investing in health care and education. Uh, we're doing things this, you know, this is an opportunity to do big things that this country's needed for a long time. And this is perhaps a rare moment of bipartisan agreement in our country. Ohio's Republican Senator Rob Portman helped craft this legislation. The U.S. Department of Justice is going to investigate the Columbus Division of Police. It comes after a request from Mayor Andrew Ginther. Police Chief Elaine Bryant worked with the DOJ when she was in Detroit, and she says she welcomes them here. She says CPD has to be open to the possibility it doesn't have all the answers. Here's Lacey Crisp. This is a good day for the Columbus Division of Police. That's because it's a day of opportunity. Opportunity for us to grow, build, and improve. After months of waiting for an answer, the Department of Justice has told Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther it will review the Columbus Division of Police through their COPS, or Community-Oriented Policing Services Office. This is not about one particular officer, policy, or incident. Rather, this is about reforming the entire institution of policing. Genther and City Attorney Zach Klein wrote to the DOJ asking for a complete review of the division patterns and policies, particularly when it comes to racial bias. Mayor Ginther explained today he asked for the DOJ to either or both review or place the Columbus Division of Police under a consent decree. This proactive posture, which is different than a consent decree, or formal patterns or practice investigation does not include litigation at this point. The Fraternal Order of Police sent a statement saying, in part, we are confident in the leadership of Chief Bryant in that she will protect the integrity of the department and maintain the level of services that the officers and the public deserve. Police Chief Elaine Bryant will guide the cops' office in what areas to review. There has been areas identified where there is room for improvement and for growth. These include use of force, training, de-escalation, recruiting, diversity, bias, 
evidence-based policing and early warning system for officers in need of support. When in Detroit, Bryant worked with the DOJ monitors to make sure that department met all expectations under a consent decree. So I guess having that experience, how do you feel about the DOJ coming in to review your brand new department? Well, I will tell you, uh, just in the short time that I've been here, um, I welcome them coming in and looking into our department. I think that there are some areas where they can absolutely assist us in being able to improve. A big one, again, is the technology, looking at some of our training. Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. Four years ago, an 18-year-old fell off of a ride at the Ohio State Fair and died. Two years later, Tyler's Law was signed, increasing safety checks for rides at state fairs and carnivals. The goal? putting a stop to tragedies, but now there are new questions about state law. One family says their four-year-old daughter almost died on a ride at a Labor Day event. For 10 Investigates, here's Brian Somerville. Cell phone video taken at Zucchini Fest in Obets shows children on a kiddie ride. We want to focus your attention on four-year-old Faith. Her five-year-old cousin Dylan sits beside her. Then in just mere seconds, everything changes. A frantic cry for help from Faith's aunt, Brett Cahill. A scream of pain from Faith. After falling from the ride. It, that was, it was horrible. It's horrifying watching that all happen. Faith's parents, Josh and Rosie, they want answers. You know, we're lucky Faith's with us today. This needs to be taken a lot more seriously. According to Russell Clements, the Lil Wheel is ran by his company, Triple Treat Shows. The ride is similar to this one shown on the company's website. According to Brett, Clements came over to help and directed them to the paramedic tent where Faith was looked over and released. Was it ever offered to her? Was it ever offered to you all for her to go by ambulance? No, it was never it was never offered. They just said that they felt like she was okay. She was moving her arm. Clements filled out this incident report saying Faith had fallen about three feet and had a bruise and a knot on her right arm. Clements told 10TV when the ride was inspected prior to anyone riding it and following the incident, it was checked again. He's pulling on the bar and he couldn't get it to move and he was 205 pounds and, um, you know, it wasn't moving with him jerking on it. Clements says he could not find or recreate the same failure concerning the lap bar coming unlatched. The operator, he says, has been with his company all season for the last few months. I asked him if my daughter was able to reach around to unlatch the bar by herself, and he said no, and he showed me where it was, and yeah, there, I, there's no way my daughter could have reached. The Cahills say an hour later they took Faith to an urgent care, where, again, it was nothing more than cuts and bruises and a swollen arm. Two days later, they say Faith wasn't acting like herself. Another doctor's visit revealed she had broken her collarbone. The Cahills are upset knowing this incident was never reported to the Ohio Department of Agriculture. The man who owned the ride um, never sent a report, but he never had to send a report. Back in June, we told you about Tyler's Law and how this new state law changed safety measures and standards for amusement rides in partnership with the Ohio Department of Agriculture after Tyler Jarrell died in 2017 while riding a ride at the state fair that broke apart. We thought there was no loopholes with anything. I mean, you know, we, you know, we thought this new law you know, things had to be reported. 
and it looks like it doesn't. The accident report form on ODA's website, which was in place before Tyler's Law, defines an accident as happening during the operation of a ride, which results in death or an injury requiring hospital admission because Faith was never admitted. It was never reported. The medical evidence is there, whether she went by squat or went after by us taking her. Like, had we known what the protocols were, we would have followed them. But us being the general public, we don't know the laws around this. ODA confirms it is talking with Faith's family, and it is investigating to see if the ride was operated safely and properly. It also says the little wheel passed its inspection prior to the Zucchini Fest and is properly permitted. The Cahills say the ride was operating no more than 30 minutes after this incident. And I looked back and the the ride was started um, back up. They were loading kids on it. The Cahills say more needs to be done for all incidents to be reported for the safety and well-being of all Ohioans. She's lucky to be here. If anybody sees the video, you can see she's lucky to be here. Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. Russell Clements, the owner of Triple Treat Shows, says the first he heard of the extent of Faith's injuries was when 10 TV contacted him. He says had he known, he would have contacted the Ohio Department of Agriculture immediately. The idea of work has changed over the past year. With Labor Day just a few days ago, we wanted to look at the workforce as a whole and what's being done to fill jobs. I think we all can remember just the days that followed unity and and strength of purpose and heart that people were exhibiting to total strangers, no matter where you were. A moment of reflection from former 10 TV anchor Jerry Revish, what he remembers about arriving in Manhattan on September 11th, 2001. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10 TV. Work? has changed and employers are hopeful more people will get back into the workforce. Federal pandemic unemployment assistance programs expired, affecting millions across the country. According to a new report on job trends in Ohio, there are still some pandemic-related challenges. 10TV's Lindsay Mills takes a look at where the workforce goes from here. Now hiring signs just about everywhere you look. Here in central Ohio, from the Columbus Zoo to Coda, all different industries are seeing the need. Anthony Sabo is the vice president of water park operations and guest services at the zoo. One you know, great thing about uh, both of our properties this year is we have made some adjustments to our pay rates like so many other businesses. And for Coda, there's a need for more bus drivers. Jeff Poulin is Coda's media relations manager. We had about 700 Uh, operators before the pandemic. And now we have about 637. There's hope that now federal pandemic unemployment help has expired. More people will get back into the workforce. We need about 50 more operators to continue growing our service. But according to findings from new research released Monday by Policy Matters Ohio, as of July, Ohio had 239,000 fewer jobs than before the pandemic. Michael Shields is a researcher with the nonprofit Policy Research Institute. A lot of people are still really struggling 
in Ohio, and policymakers need to keep their eye on that. Shield says his research shows the pandemic is creating challenges that prevent people from working, particularly women. That's in part because uh, they they were um, especially concentrated in the industries uh, that laid off a whole lot of folks, uh, but also a lot of women have had to step back from the workforce uh, to take on more caregiving responsibilities. According to the latest numbers from the state, as of July 31st, more than 85,000 Ohioans were receiving pandemic emergency unemployment compensation, and more than 200,000 were receiving pandemic unemployment assistance. In Ohio, those programs expired. In Columbus, Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. Ohio's elections chief is highlighting a program that helps protect survivors of domestic violence and other crime. It's an address confidentiality program called Safe at Home. It provides a substitute address, mail forwarding, and confidential voter registration. Secretary of State Frank LaRose spoke in conjunction with the group Choices. And I remember hearing some of these survivors of domestic abuse saying that they had to choose between their personal safety and their right to vote. No one should ever have to make that choice. No one should ever have to choose between their personal safety and their precious right to vote. You can learn more about how this program works at safeathomeohio.gov. We've posted a link to that at 10tv.com slash featured links. While the war in Afghanistan is over at last check, some Americans were still in the country. 10TV spoke with an upper Arlington woman who was able to come to the U.S. from Afghanistan in the early 90s. She eventually started a family in central Ohio. While she made it here, she's fighting to help save dozens of her family members who are still trying to escape. Here's 10TV's Andrew Kinsey. You know, when the Taliban took over, they couldn't, they couldn't get out of the airport. They would keep going to the airport for a couple of days, and they were shooting there. Pustana and her husband were able to leave Afghanistan two decades ago. They came to America for an opportunity for a better life. She says they chose Central Ohio because she wanted to provide her family the education she never got. But she says every Afghan deserves that opportunity. Every person deserves the best in this world, especially Afghans. They, they deserve the best because they suffer so much. Pushchana says watching the terror unfold outside the Kabul airport, she knew she had to help the family still left in Afghanistan. Like, I can hear the the sound of the, you know, the shooting and everything when I was calling them in the airport and they were so scared, but they couldn't even get into the gate. They were pushed out. With nearly 60 family members still in Afghanistan, she did what she could to help seven escape from the airport in late August. But nearly 50 others are still there. And people, you know, they tried to hold the airplane to get out of Afghanistan. I don't think I wanted to see my country like that. After America pulled troops from Afghanistan last month, Pushtana says her family escaped to Jalalabad, a city in Afghanistan. They have very little to eat and their life is, you know, not safe there. My niece is like, they're so scared. My youngest niece, my brother's daughter, she was so scared. I just 
Well, every time I hear their voices, I cannot go to sleep. I cannot eat. I'm just, I was like walking zombie for many, many days. And I just cannot imagine the life of Hopkins. She says her focus now is sending money to provide food to her family and calling immigration agencies every day and hopes to help her family escape. It doesn't matter. We all are the same. We need to speak up for all of them. They all need help. We need help. You know, everybody deserves the best in this world, no matter who they are. Let's let's be all together and make a peace in my country. And that was 10 TV's Andrew Kinsey with producer Abby Meyer reporting. For many of us, the pictures and pain of September 11th, 2001, feel like yesterday in the post-9-11 world. We'll never forget the attack on our country and how the United States banded together. The question we always hear, where were you that day? And that was the discussion at the Columbus Metropolitan Club on Wednesday. Former 10TV anchors, Forever Friends, Jerry Revish and Scott Light were joined by Shirley Brooks-Jones for a discussion. She was on her way home from Europe when her flight was diverted. Her story inspired the musical Come From Away. Scott covered the tragedy at the Pentagon and Jerry traveled to New York City. We drove for nine hours to get up to, uh, to New York City. Um, all the bridges and roads were closed when we got up there. On the way up, we were listening to the radio totally, just listening for every little piece of information that would uh, come. And at first there wasn't a whole lot, but then things were, were, were being uh, transmitted to us, being relayed to the folks who were listening to the radio about what had happened here. So we got to town about 11 o'clock that night and didn't have time to set up for anything but a phoner. And as close as we could get was the Hudson River on the other side of Manhattan. But we could see this huge ball of smoke, uh, orange and black and white, different colors, just hanging over lower Manhattan there and just hanging in the air around all of that. And the air smelled like burnt wire. It was just that far away we could still smell uh, that. The next day, Jerry says they were able to get closer to ground zero. People would come up to our news vehicle with photographs of their loved ones, and they would ask us if we would put them on TV because they were missing. We didn't have the heart to tell them that we, um, this won't be seen here in New York. It's going to be seen in Columbus. So we just shot the pictures anyway and, and interviewed them. Jerry says he's hopeful parents will talk about how the country came together during that time. And he hopes future generations focus on the love that was shared that day and the unity in our country. You can watch this entire conversation at 10tv.com slash featured links. Thank you all for being with us today for Face the State. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Take care. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. 
Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent, or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. If you came across a child struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes. Their age. Where they speak. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America. 200 food banks strong. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Daniela Winchell, who is the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. How are you? Oh, I'm terrific. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, two things that I wanted to ask you about. One is, what is the Ohio Wine Producers Association? And also, about your location, because that's pretty unique, too, in itself. Well, we're a trade association um, that represents the interests of the growers and the wineries across the state. We are not registered lobbyists, but we do communicate with our legislators if there is an area of concern, both on the state and the national level, that that impact our industry. Um, But that only takes a tiny portion of my time. Beyond that, um, we provide professional development for our members. Um, We put on conferences. Um, We troubleshoot when they have an issue that needs to be addressed. And we um, provide regular internal communication as to what their needs might be and then how they might be responded to. And then finally, we do events. We do festivals and, and dinners and getaway weekends and wine trails, those kinds of things, with the expectation that people will d- discover a winery. There's a winery within about 35 miles of every Ohio resident. So hopefully they'll discover the wineries, um, learn to fall in love with the wines, and be supportive of, of rural economic development. And you are in Geneva, way up in northeast Ohio. Right. Uh, a strange story. I started out as a school teacher, and I could type, uh, and I had a fairly, sh- well, a very chauvinistic board in the old days, in the late 70s, and they invited me to come to a meeting and take notes, and they hired me for $3 an hour, and I could work about 12 hours a month because the rest of the money had to go for toward the copy machine and postage. Um, that grew eventually into a full-time job, and I have a small staff here. Um, because I live in Geneva and family was here and I was anchored here, the office, fortunately, the board has allowed me to remain here. Um, but I do represent the whole state. But that's, uh, you know, very much wine country up that way. It is. Um, but actually, if you look at the whole state, there are a whole lot of wine countries around Ohio. When I took this job, there were just 13 wineries. And now there are more than 375. Wow. So there are lots and lots of opportunities um, for me to be supportive of, of all the regions in the state. Um, although the bulk of the grapes are still grown here in the Grand River Valley, uh, bulk of the, at least the wine grapes, uh, in terms of concentration, are here in the Grand River Valley. It's a, a little area, about 20 miles long and about four miles wide, and the most of the vinifera, the, the majority of vinifera in a single location would be grown here. So it's, it's been good to watch it develop uh, statewide for sure. 
but also to be able to be supportive of the efforts of the, the guys who are in my backyard. What uh, has the, the pandemic, what impact has it had on the industry? Well, it's really interesting. Um, we have been having great good fortune to work with our General Assembly and the Division of Liquor Control, and they have been very, very good to us, understanding that we are rural economic development. Um, we are, you know, revenue streams in communities um, outside just the city borders. And that is, uh, added to that fact, um, Pennsylvania was, was closed very, very tightly, as was New York. There were lots of restrictions in Indiana, lots of restrictions in, in Michigan. So there was an opportunity because we were allowed to pour wine outside. Liquor control let us expand our our perimeters so we could put some picnic tables out in among the vineyards. Um, and we could advertise um, social distancing, sipping wine on 30 acres of, of open space proverbially. So we saw a lot of traffic. And then we have some very smart winemakers in this state, and they created all kinds of opportunities with individual deliveries and using social media to try and do uh, one-on-one deliveries to residents' homes that were close. One winery in Manchester, Ohio, um, who was primarily drawing people from Columbus, but when the pandemic hit, his neighbors discovered him, and all of a sudden, instead of 10% of being supported by the locals and 90% by the cities, he was the reverse happened, and he's got a whole cadre of loyal customers who come from their his immediate area that didn't even know he existed prior to that. So, and then the legislature uh, did all kinds of really good things for us. They allowed us to um, sell a couple of glasses of wine to go with a meal. Um, it's been it's been a very very it's very nice, and the wineries, frankly. In 2019 did well, and 2020 probably did better because they were able to offer this really interesting um, sort of dynamic experience to people from other areas who discovered us. They came back in 2020 and again in 21. So we're seeing very strong traffic. 19 is a very good year, but 20 was even better, and, and 21 is built on that. That's great. Obviously, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not, grapes grow, and <laughs> you have to harvest them, right? That's correct, and we were had the again, good fortune of being exempt. So our guys could work in the cellars and they could pick the grapes and they could make sure that those harvests weren't lost um, because we were we were considered an essential business. So we were very fortunate in that. Are they having staffing issues like a lot of other industries? I had a question from a local reporter um, talking, I was talking about how good things were and, you know, the wine are selling wine and the wine is better and winning more medals. And they said, well, what's the biggest problem? And I said, staffing. Um, it has been a huge dilemma. Um, you know, vineyard work is not easy. Um, it's hard labor, and getting people to work that hard in the vineyards, one thing. Number two, um, staffing this, this to provide a good experience for those increased crowds have been a difficult task. And a lot of the wineries in Ohio also serve food as a part of that opportunity that we were given by the legislature to do some wine to go with a meal. And so it has been a huge dilemma. That if, if there's number one problem, it has been staffing, and, and it continues to be. Talking with Daniela Winchell, she is the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. Well, your website uh, is great because you have all these different trails around Ohio, wine trails, and then when you go to each area of the state, a listing of all the wineries and, and links to their website. So it's it's really comprehensive, and it can give you a quick idea of how big of uh, a deal this is in Ohio. It is, and actually we're taking it a step farther. Um, again, focusing on the local, we have begun to, tra- to create some mini trails with four or five or six or seven wineries so that folks can take a day trip and um, just visit someone who's really close to home. So we're trying to focus on that support local and discover what's in your 
backyard sort of theme. We've developed about, I think there are six or seven mini trails now, but our goal is before the end of 2021, or excuse me, 2022, to have about 20 of these mini trails around with little rack cards and, and prizes, and, and people can visit and collect, you know, tchotchke, if you will, um, swag from the wineries uh, that they visit and discover them. Our goal, our goal, we have a lot of different goals. Um, we do high-end dinners um, that are 75 or $80 a person where we feature um, wines in the 20 to $40 range um, for the quote-unquote connoisseur. But we also um, understand that there are an awful lot of wines to be discovered, and so we encourage people who maybe didn't think about drinking wine or, or, or beer drinkers or, or maybe even, um, a, you know, never, never experienced alcoholic beverage whatsoever, as long as they do it responsibly, um, to find a wine that they might fall in love with. And um, so, if, you know, we encourage folks to understand that the very best wine in the world is the best wine that tastes, the one that tastes best to you. So whether you're a sophisticate um, who can tell that this is a Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, a vineyard in the southwest corner of the state, or you're an ingenue who just likes to drink something fun and, and, and a little bit sweet and maybe even a little bit bubbly, um, there's something for everything. And that's, that's a good thing about the wineries in Ohio. They're family-owned, mostly. Um, they are flexible, so they respond to the needs of their consumer, and they provide what the consumer regionally is interested in tasting. One of the wine trails on your website is the Capital City Wine Trail here in the Columbus area, and there are 20 wineries on it, which I, I'm guessing 20, 30 years ago would have been unheard of. That's exactly right, and that's one of the things we talk about. Ohio has so much diversity. Uh, in the Grand River Valley, uh, on the Lake Erie, um, uh, in the Sandusky area, we grow a lot of these these vinifera, uh, Chardonnay, Riesling, Cabernet, Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and for years, that's what the wine world identified as wine. However, over the decades, the university folks at Ohio State, at Kent, uh, at the University of Minnesota, have developed some cold-hardy varieties that can grow in central Ohio. For example, Soini just won a, a big gold medal in the Ohio competition. He's producing grapes that could not have been grown there um, even uh, two decades ago. But they put fruit into the ground uh, because the university said this fruit can survive given the relatively inclement uh, central Ohio weather in terms of winter temperatures and making lovely wines that they're winning gold medals on. That's great. Uh, this has been a, a wet summer, at least around here it has been. I'm not sure about other areas of the state. How, how are the how's the crop doing this year? It has. It's, it's been interesting. Um, there were also there was also some spring frost in different pockets around the state, um, and so between the spring frost, which thinned the crop, if you will, in some parts of Ohio, and the relatively um, um, wet temperature, uh, wet uh, conditions. It's been incumbent on all those guys that are growing grapes to pay very, very close attention to disease control. Um, black rot and mildew is what killed the industry in the 1860s when Nicholas Longworth was growing in Cincinnati. So we've been fortunate that the viticulture program, the wine growing program, and the, and the extension folks at Ohio State and others around the, their various campuses have taught us how important it was to manage and keep clean fruit, keep clean vineyards. And so even though there was some disease pressure, it really has been mitigated by the fact that our growers are paying attention to detail and taking care of the, the crop loads um, that are out there producing a clean fruit. Talking with Daniela Winchell, she is the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. It's uh, harvest time in some parts of the state from south to north as the next few weeks go on. And, and that's a busy time for wineries and also when they rely on a lot of visitors, right? It is. It's, it's sort of 
of a, a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, it's the best time of the year for visitation, the busiest time of the year for the wineries. So there are lots of winemakers who will uh, set up a cot in the pressing area um, because they're there like 20, 22 hours a day getting everything in. There are so many harvest seasons. Down in southwest Ohio, um, they started picking back in the middle of August. And around the state, depending on the geographic location and the site selection, um, our harvest will go through the 1st of November. So it goes from southwest Ohio up to the islands, across Lake Erie, and then pretty much around the state, um, depending on the variety that that grower is, is, has in his vineyard. And I wanted to ask about the spotted lanternfly, because I know that's a concern now. Oh, a threat. Um, this is a very pretty bug. It is, as an adult, it's very colorful. It is. It's beautiful. It really is. <laughs> even, in, even in the nymph stage, it's sort of interesting. The first nymphs are little black and white. They're black and white tiny hoppers. They jump a lot. And then they turn into sort of this black and red bug thing. And ultimately, they turn in this beautiful butterfly-looking thing. They originally came in, they think, around 2004 to 2006 on a, a freight ship from China that came into the East Coast. And what happens is the adults, this pretty red and black, beautiful piece of, of, of nature, lays these eggs, and they, they produce, uh, like, lots. I mean, the, the numbers of eggs that are laid are just incredible. October, November, and they like to find um, sort of flat surfaces, sometimes the little shiny surfaces, um, where the eggs attach. Um, so that means they attach to the sides of railroad cars, they attach to the sides of campers, they attach to the sides of, of furniture in your, in your lawn, and the uh, eggs are these little flat sort of brownish masses. And they especially like an, another tree that comes from China. It's called the Tree of, of Heaven, and it's a very pretty tree. I'm, I'm, I discovered, to my chagrin, a couple of weeks ago that we had a Tree of Heaven in my parking lot. Wow. I park my car every day, but uh, they tend to they, they excrete a sap, and the sap and the, and the nymphs will destroy a vineyard. Um, southeast Pennsylvania has been unundated. Um, hundreds of acres of vineyards destroyed. The actual lanternfly itself, uh, there's some videos on YouTube that are like really scary. They're, uh, one of the growers has a tree trunk of this Tree of Heaven, and he runs his hand down the side of the tree trunk because you can't see the tree trunk for all of the lanternflies. Huh. So we've been very, very cautious. I sit on a couple of national boards, and every month when we talk to the other state directors, we're all talking about it. They are worried about it in California, and Pennsylvania actually has established some quarantine areas where vehicles have to be checked before they go in and out. Last spring, the Department of Agriculture found three or four of the adults in a little community in southeast Ohio called Bingo Junction. So we have been really alert. Um, they then, last two weeks ago now, discovered two of them, one on the east side of Cleveland in, in St. Joseph Cemetery and one in East Cleveland, and the industry up here was just really on edge. So we have been distributing pictures of the various stages, asking people to pay attention, asking our campground owners to have their, um, their the folks that are moving their vehicles to check them because it, it will destroy an industry in a year or two. So it is important that we are very, and, and important that the public be vigilant in helping us. Talking with Daniela Winchell, she's the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. If folks want more information about the industry, how to get Ohio wines, perhaps online, or whatever information that they want, uh, how do they find it, Daniela? Well, we're at Ohio Wines, and the wines is plural, dot org. Um, and my email is d as in David Winchell, at ohiowines.org. 
Um, we're here to service the industry. I'm looking, as I speak with you, uh, two emails came in from folks who are interested in starting a winery. So we have a whole program to help people get started on the right foot. We want them to be successful. Um, we would be delighted to talk to those folks. Um, we have a really great conference coming up in February in Dublin um, where we share lots of information at the Ohio Wine Conference. There's lots of information available out there. We would be delighted to provide consumer information, to provide business development information. Um, all of the above is part of what the service, the part of the service the association offers. Okay, ohiowines.org. Daniela Winchell with the Ohio Wine Producers Association. Always good to talk to you. Thanks so much uh, for all this information. Oh, thanks so much, David. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.